This is Common Decency, a Nomad London podcast. Checking in. Helen Kamek became an artist because she felt something was missing in her life. She had been a singer and a social worker, and before all that, she thought her destiny might be bagging groceries in an English supermarket. What Kamek has achieved visually through her films, installations, photographs, and text-driven works is nothing short of extraordinary. She's won the Turner Prize and the Max Mara Art Prize for Women, and she has done it in a way that only a former social worker could. Kamek's work is brave, rigorous, and empathetic. It examines what it means to have a voice, and what it means to have a voice taken away. As in her work, Kamek is big-hearted in conversation. Her framing of things provides what feels like essential perspective about the moment we live in, about how to be human, how to dig deeper, how to be kind. Helen Kamek is my guest on this episode. I'm Howie Kahn, with Common Decency. I want to start by talking about your work in in the tube right now. It's your first major public commission. There's three text-based works. Um, I think it's across seven stations, seven tube Mm -hmm. stations. The language uh, that's in the pieces, one says, the edge is never still. The next says, glass distortions don't impair my view, merely change it. And the third says, sit alongside and feel me breathe, which is the one I want to start with because it seems to be the most um, inviting and ghostly at the same time. And I want to talk about the decisions you make in terms of choosing your words. Sit alongside and feel me breathe. Where does it come from? I guess it comes from a place of provoking empathy, an acknowledgement that empathy is not, doesn't feel as though it is fully flowing and existing in society at the moment. And so I started to think, as I often think about this idea of breath in crisis, what that means. And I mean, an obvious connection is COVID, but actually it's about, it's about coming alongside another human body. I'm really interested in this idea of embodiment. Of course, for me in the past kind of 18 months, there's been the pandemic, which has been global, which is a a kind of a way of recognizing uh, being confronted by inequality, conversations about whose lives matter. So, you know, it coincided with thinking about this commission coincided with George, George Floyd's murder. And so it's a kind of connecting. It's a kind of intersection of all the kinds of points that I'm interested in, like kind of points of concern that I'm interested in. So, yes, so it's about the kind of embodiment of breath in crisis. It's about empathy. It's about collective notions and understanding about what empathy really means. It's about um, how we uh, recognise that the earth that we're living on is struggling to breathe and what we do about that. So I guess it's a way of trying to provoke thought, feeling, and dialogue, I suppose, yeah. It, it really sits with me. I mean, when you 
come up with the words that that go on on the works how many drafts are we talking about how many word choices are we moving around it's a line of poetry it's a line in an artwork you know provocation as you say for a more compassionate future so it's probably not something you just came up with while you were buttering your toast <laughs> no although sometimes that is how it works sometimes there are moments where something comes almost in a split second almost without thought you know it's kind of mm-hmm. just comes out of you there's a sort of like this birthing of words and other times it's so sit alongside and feel me breathe is a really short phrase but actually it took me ages to get the words right because I didn't want it to be an instruction I wanted it to be something that was a provocation a question a statement so in order for that to happen to work words into a situation where it isn't about I'm telling you what you must think I'm telling you what I think you need to really think about every element of the sentence or even if it's not a sentence you have to so the the word sit moved around <laughs> alongside was at one point was beside and so I had to think about many things I had to think about what was going to be okay for a public commission it looks like a quite a straightforward phrase for me it's asking and trying to talk about many different things but actually it was a very frightening phrase for TFL so for the commissioners because of the delicacy of particularly the pandemic but in terms of staff safety in terms of what you're asking people to do the tube is covered with lots of instructions about what you have to do at the moment um, and it needed to feel outside of that but it needed to for me somehow reflect it also so yeah that's a very long-winded way of saying there are many many considerations the one that came quickly which is the edge is never still because it's the one that came last and it's the one that was almost a pulling together of, of, of what I was trying to have a conversation about with the three works together. And tell me about what that one means to you, the edges, the edges never still. And also how much of this comes from, you know, as an introspective person uh, with, uh, you know, a lifetime of experience riding the tube and here in New York riding the subway for me, you know, thoughts occur to you about like what yeah. it all means and the metaphor yeah. of it all and the herds of people you know, coming on and getting off and going up and getting down. And the -hmm. fact that there's actually um, a real danger built into the the whole thing in in a lot of ways, too. So the edge is never still. Yeah. I mean, I am I am perpetually fascinated by the tube, the subway. I find it quite frightening at times. That's about the physicality of being under the ground and that kind of catastrophic thinking that can come into play. But it's also about what happens to people in confined spaces and spaces of potential danger, as in the edge of the platform. So there's this this one kind of conversation that's about the reality of being in an enclosed space underground and this, this idea of the edge. But really the edge is about transition and it's about this idea of moving from one space into another space, moving from one subject position um, into another subject position potentially. So who you are in one geographical location is not the same as who you are in another geographical location. You know, you might leave your home as a mother or a, uh, you know, as a, a partner, then you become a commuter. You might be traveling on your way to an interview. So you might be an anxious person. There are all of these many, many, many different facets of, um, human experience, all confined into this one, one, 
this one space that's underground. And so there's something about this idea of the edge, the pushing of oneself emotionally, which of course is a much, much bigger metaphor, which is about how we do push ourselves, how our edge is always moving. This idea of, you know, in the UK, there's this phrase of I'm being pushed to the edge. And that is something about the pandemic. The moment of the pandemic is that everybody's edges were being pushed and pulled. And that's frightening for people. And sometimes people move in, you know, internalize that and other times it comes out. So, you know, there's aggression that also is happening out on the streets. So this idea of this kind of impermeable edge that can move, can transition, but also is also a barrier uh, that people are putting up as well. So I'm just trying to have that conversation. Those first two phrases, sit alongside and feel me breathe and the edge is, is never still are both very mantra-like. It made me wonder if you're a, a meditator. You know what? I would love to be a meditator, but I find it incredibly difficult to switch my brain off. It's something that I feel like I would aspire to um, at some point in my life. That's, that's where I would like to go. I've sometimes done like lead meditations and they're, they're the kind of most incredible experiences. I feel it throughout my whole body. But if I try and do it by myself, I struggle. Um, so I have other ways for meditative processes. One of them is driving. I drive in complete silence, sometimes for hours. Um, and it's this space where I, nobody else is there. Nothing else can touch me. I'm kind of concentrating, but also I'm that concentration enables me to somehow internalize and I can do that for hours. And quite often I write things when I'm driving in that way. So I have I have different meditative spaces that I that I use, I guess, because I need to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think these point towards that. They have that that vibration to them. I feel like I want to try the edges never still as a meditation later and just see how mm. it goes. The, the third one, uh, glass distortions don't impair my view, merely change it. Tell me about the origins of that. Okay, so that one was based in a kind of short poetic text that I'd written a few years ago, and I've never done anything with it. And I didn't know what to do with it. It didn't really sit with anything else that I'd made. And actually, this felt this, it kind of jumped. This was the moment for this. So I, I rewrote it, and I've reduced it, and I've changed it. But really, it's about it's about how we view the world. It's about how we view each other. Of course, it's a reference to the glass windows on the underground. They're kind of curved. And so everything is slightly distorted when we look through them. But of course, actually, it's about this idea of the positives that we can get from having different kinds of ways of seeing, whether that's through a gaze of somebody else, whether it's through challenging our own gaze, whether it's about redressing or kind of understanding what our gaze might do or the impact of that gaze in the world. There's something about this idea of transformation that's important and vital for us right now. Um, so this idea that it's not hampering you to try and see somebody else's point of view or to try to understand somebody else's life or to be able to see something in a different way it's not going to impair you. It's going to change something. And this kind of transformation is what's really important. While these things, these phrases are, are mantra-like to me, they also, and, you know, I, I'm sure this is a projection on, on my part, but they read as therapeutic as well. And I know your your background, your, your first career, your first professional incarnation was as a social worker, right? Yeah. Working with, with people who had 
you know, serious hurdles to, to overcome in, in a variety of ways. And I want to talk about the idea of transitioning from a career in social work to a career, not only as an artist, but as the kind of artist you are. But I think first, it it's important to maybe talk about what your focus was on as a social worker and some of the things, you know, you learned that led to your transformation and transition. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I worked as a social worker for around 10 years. Which is a long no- time. Yeah, it was a long time. <laughs> it was a long time. It didn't feel like a long time, actually. Um, you were busy. It was really busy and and really fulfilling, actually. Um, so I, I, for most of the time, I worked in a centre where we ran different kinds of group work programs, as well as kind of individual support um, sessions. It was quite an innovative um, centre at the time. So I had most responsibility really for for running group work programs so i we ran um i ran a young women's group um which was for young women who were really struggling on many different levels all referred in by casework social workers so already young people who are in the system i i ran another group for black young people black and minority ethnic young people as it was called then i ran a sports group for parents with mental health issues I uh, ran with another colleague, a domestic violence project um, that supported mostly women who'd um, experienced domestic violence, which had a group alongside that supported their children because there were many, many issues that um, affect children, obviously, um, once they've experienced domestic violence themselves. I ran individual support sessions for men who were perpetrators of violence, sexual and physical violence. So I, yeah, it was very, very varied. And I did some casework as well, lots of casework, particularly working with young people. And I think there were lots and lots of cuts that were made. And I was asked to do things that I considered dangerous. And I made a decision to to leave, although I left and then I ran a multi-agency support centre for young people. So I didn't kind of leave immediately, but I ran this centre at the same time as going back to to school and doing a, a photography degree. Something was missing in my life. I had been a, a singer, a kind of in bands. And, you know, from being about 15, I was going around singing in clubs and getting paid. You know, that was my job that I got paid. It meant I didn't have to work in a supermarket. And that's what I thought I was going to do for my life. And of course, it didn't happen. I went to university. I very quickly got into social work through some of the projects that I was working on while I was at university. And actually, when I stopped singing, something was really missing. And my partner at the time said, look, if you have this gap, fill it, do something, you know. So I went to a, the university at the time, we're doing this um, Saturday art school, um, run on, a, on an art school kind of form, I suppose, um, in a way that lots of um, evening classes didn't. And I just, I got in a dark room and I was just, we're talking about meditation, but I was, I was lost. The day was gone and I didn't know where it had gone. So it offered me something that was really missing in my life. And I decided to make the change. So, so yeah, I decided to get a portfolio together and apply to go to university again. And, um, and that was the beginning of my journey. And um, I carried on in social, doing social work practice alongside both my, my bachelor's and then my master's. Um, I was chair of foster panel up until a year and a half ago. Um, so I've, what does you know, that, what does that mean chair of the foster panel in terms of where children go for foster homes? Yeah. Yeah. So you did we, that until a year and a half ago. Yeah. So, so you were, um, you were winning the Turner prize and, and also <laughs> well, dealing yeah. with, with serious child welfare issues. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I was so I was responsible for the, the part that I was chairing was um, we were assessing and approving new foster carers. So that that was my role. Yeah. So I yes. I, yes, I have been. And now I'm too busy and I I missed a couple of panels. And so my vice chair um, had to um, chair the panels. And and then I realized that actually, if I'm going to miss panels, that consistency is really important for the for the panel. So I stepped down. Um, yeah. But yes. I mean, it's, it's it's interesting because to me, there's such a clear overlap between actual practicing social work and some of the aims of, of public art as social work. Mm. Mm. You know, if, if you know what I mean, like reaching out to society as a, as a whole, delivering a, a message, trying to spread some of the same um, ideas in, in a way that you would use to help somebody in, in crisis, you know, these are, these are some new tools. This is a suggestion, something to try to make yourself feel better, to integrate in a healthier way, to integrate yourself in a healthier way, to fit in in a way where the anxiety is, is somehow how less. So it, to me, it's, it's really interesting because I think, I mean, the show is called Common Decency because I do believe there's such a strong social benefit to public art. Mm. It's really interesting because I I think often the question is about, you know, do you use the skills that you learned in social work in your art practice? And actually, as you've just described, I have no way of separating who I am as a, as a person. So the way that I make art was the way that I was a social worker. So this idea of kind of openness, transparency, when you meet someone, when you're meeting them, whether you're meeting them because your role is about, obviously, you know, the skills that you need are slightly different, but there's something about meeting somebody with an openness and an absolute respect for who they are and the un, the lack of um, assumption or the challenge of your own assumptions when you meet somebody. And I, you know, hopefully that's something when I'm meeting an archive or when I'm meeting a live human being, that's something that's really important to me. Uh, and, and those those enable me, I suppose, to continue to work with people as well as hoping that whatever it is that I'm making will speak to people and that's work in itself. But then when I work with people, so for example, when I made the, I was commissioned to make the long note, which was about the role of um, women in the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland. And when I was first asked to make it, I, I said, oh, no, I'm not the right person. You know, I, I make work usually, you know, when I have an understanding, somehow I'm in the kind of conversation that I'm having. And this felt completely outside. I do have quite a lot of Irish heritage, actually, but it was it's not my experience. I'm not from Northern Ireland. I, I wasn't around in the troubles. And actually, the curator that I worked with said, you know what? This is exactly why you should be doing it. Not, not just because you weren't there, not just because it's not your family, but actually because this is your practice. Your practice is about finding your place and your space in a situation and then trying to figure that through, ask questions, meet people with openness and enable them to actually have a conversation with you, but also with each other. Um, and so I think the way that I make work has been changing quite dramatically, probably over the last two or three, four years, maybe. Yeah. I think the way you combine um, true compassion 
with very rigorous investigation, just adds a stunning layer of depth to your work that I find to be very important and and very cool and has kind of taught me things as a as a journalist which is my my background how do you ask questions how are you open to a story how do you get people to to talk and and i do think you know your background as a social worker you'll go into a situation making a film trying to find people and you'll be able to approach them in a different way having you know as opposed to somebody who doesn't have that background and doesn't know how to soften their edges or maybe not talk so much or you know kind of lean in a little bit and and uh invite story invite trust and and things like that could you talk to me about some of the the women especially you met making that film and how you got them to um open up because I, I know they felt, in part or maybe in large, that their stories weren't so important. And people who mm. don't identify their stories as, as important ones don't always have the language with which to tell them at all. Yeah. I mean, I think, for example, in the long note, there were these two extremes. So we had uh, Bernadette Devlin McCallisky, who is a great orator, who's incredibly articulate. And she was a little bit suspicious, I think, initially to start with. Oh, here we have another artist wanting to make a film where I am a focus of it. And so what I needed to do was just to be completely straight with her. She needed to know who I was, what my practice is about, why I was doing it. And so we had this conversation. I arrived in her office and she said, right, I don't really know what this is about. Take a seat and tell me. And so I had to work really, really quickly to try and communicate what it was that I was interested in, in doing with the film, like not just say, oh, this is a film about, but really what I was interested in doing. And after about a minute and a half, she was just like, right, that's fine. Get your camera out and let's get going. And then we, we were there for like four hours of kind of continual conversation because that's what we ended up having. It was a conversation, which was very hard to edit because it was a conversation, but actually that's what we had. And then the other extreme was going to... Um, the Pickled Duck Cafe um, in Derry and being told that there were two women who'd worked in the shirt factories and who'd been quite active, um, who just used to go there for lunch. And I felt really uncomfortable. And I said, oh, no, I can't just go and say to these women, oh, hello, I'm making a film. Are you and ask them their names and then. But actually, I went with the curator and she said, look, do you know what? I'm going to broker this for you because I can do it. I can be the annoying curator who's doing that. And then you can just introduce yourself and talk to them in the way you would like to. So we just sat down and I explained about the film and they said, oh, but, you know, we don't have anything to say. I said, fine, I won't film you. I won't record you. Shall we just talk about it? Can I ask you a few questions? And of course, I prepared questions because I thought that might happen and that I wanted to have the kinds of questions that I thought would open up conversation. And again, we were there for two hours, but I didn't record it and I didn't film it. And then at the end, you know, there were there was laughter, there were tears and some real honesty. And I, then I said, and would you prepare, be prepared to say that to camera or to, or to a sound recorder? And they said, no. So I said, oh, my goodness, you've just given these really rich stories. What am I going to do? And then they just started laughing. And I said, well, I know what how would you feel if I wrote down what you've told me in my words? So nobody thinks they're your words, but I say it as though I'm writing down what you've told me so that I'm really clear about this. And she said, oh, 
if you think you could do that, that would be great. And then that was how their their section came into the film. So it's really about trying to, A, be really respectful and caring and nurturing, I suppose, in however way that that happens. So that was two hours. There was another mother and her daughter that I met maybe three times because she she needed, she wanted to be filmed, but she needed a bit longer in order for that process to happen. So it's about being flexible as well um, and receptive. Yeah. I mean, I really applaud that kind of quick thinking in the moment about writing down their words and being able to paraphrase it. And I can also kind of relate to the terror of taking the risk of not turning on a recorder or a camera and then not getting the answer you want. I mean, that's like, oh, heart in your heart, heart in your throat, storm clouds in the sky. What am I going to do? So bravo to you for kind of having a, <laughs> a, a plan B and one that, that works out really well in, in the film and it's a nice transition actually to what I wanted to ask you about next. When you first started studying art, you know, you said you, you got lost in, in the dark room and kind of lost all sense of time. And I, I think that uh, tipped you off to uh, this is, you know, something I need to pursue, but you're, you work across multiple mediums. And I think one of the really interesting things you do is you do use your own voice uh, to great effect when did you realize that part of what you do has to involve what you say and how you say it? I mean, I'm sure some of it goes back to being a singer and having a very intimate relationship with the power of your own own voice and ambitions surrounding it as well. Mm. I mean, you know what? I think it, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's I think it's deeply embedded in that and how I feel when I sing and how I feel when I hear the sung voice. But it's also about the presence and absence on a political level of voices, this idea of the marginal space for the voice. I'm interested in kind of the interruption of those borders, the kind of, um, I don't know, pulling the rug, shifting something, excavating, moving. All of those things are really important to me about this idea of borders of containment of particular voices. So that this idea that there isn't a voice that's ever free but there are voices that are freer than others. And so I'm really interested in kind of moving around that and kind of exploring it, but also interrupting it. Um, And sound is really important to me, always really important to me, whether it's about voice or whether it's about what I do when I play around. I think very subtly often in films, people don't necessarily understand that quite often you're watching something and the soundtrack is from another piece of footage or from something else that I've recorded but those things are really important to me because it is about kind of making something um, unsettled and unstable I suppose so that that idea of destabilizing but there's also something about I found as a I can't a young teenager comedy really troubling I always used to try and have conversations with my friends about it at the time because I kept saying, well, look, that's not funny, because actually, if you are that person in the audience, that joke is about you. And actually, that's not funny, then, is it? And on its most simplistic level, what I was talking about, of course, was this idea of subject position. And that kind of runs through everything that I do, the idea that some uh, positions are, of course, more powerful than others. And I don't just mean that in terms of structurally, I mean, in terms of how they're received, how they're heard, what they sound like. That can be about accent or language. It can be about gender. You know, it's it's across the kind of the kind of stratum of, of the way that we live our lives. 
And so this idea of trying to play with that is also really important because I think it shoves and shoves and pulls and pushes and moves people around emotionally. So this idea of not only the different registers of the voice, so the whispered voice, the shouted voice, the sung voice, all of these things which I use, it's this also this idea of, you know, the poetic voice, the philosophical voice, the political voice. They're all part of a strategy, I suppose, in thinking about what voice means. I'm wondering, as somebody who cares about sound, what are your recording sessions like? Do you are you, do you do them alone? Do you like to work with a, a director, a friend, a, a collaborator? Do you play things back for yourself? How hard are you on on yourself? It's sometimes hard to judge the quality of your own voice alone or in the moment. I mean, these things take days. Yes, maybe longer. I mean, it could take years to get it to sound the right way. This is hard. Yes, it would be good if you had that long, but. I always record in a studio and I usually record with, I mean, I've worked with a couple of different people, but I usually record with the same people who kind of know the work that I'm making, know the way that I, my voice sounds, know the way that I like my voice to sound in terms of the kind of room space and the sound of it. So I, because I, what I want is a closeness. I want to feel like I'm almost in your ears. And so it's taken it's taken a little while to to kind of get that to how exactly I'd like to hear it. But actually, I, I used to always have a friend or a partner or somebody who knew what I was doing to sit in uh, the, the desk with the engineer in order that I would feel comfortable and confident that we'd get what we needed to get. And now I'm much more confident. So I don't I don't need that anymore. So I go in with my scripts and the voiceover, the spoken voiceover doesn't actually take me that long. I generally do three takes of each section of text because I inevitably we speak differently whenever we say something. And so I give myself that kind of leeway, but I don't give myself more than three because then I can be there for hours and hours. But the singing takes me forever and I dread it. I absolutely dread it. There's nowhere to hide when you sing into a microphone with nothing else to cover you, nothing else to cover you. And I'm I'm not a professional singer. I like to sing. I, you know, I I know what I want to do with my voice, but I'm not a singer. So I have to accept now that there are bum notes, there are bits that are flat. Sometimes I'm disappointed at how it sounds and So I have a really different relationship with my sung voice recorded than I do when I sing live. So I do live performances and I just have much more abandon because once my body is there, I feel so, so much more confident and so more connect, so much more connected to an audience that it doesn't matter about bum notes or any of those things. I'm just in it and I'm just there. When I record my sung voice, it's a completely different experience for me. So it's hard. It's really hard. I struggle with it. I want to talk a little bit about, they call it Idlewild, which is a film you released in, in 2020 and I think made in 2019. You sing uh, a Johnny Mercer song, mm. Lazy Bones, in it. And, it, you know, the, the piece is about a lot of things. It's also it's about the politics of, of laziness and race related to that that idea. It's also a really ambitious song. It's not like, oh, this is easy. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. major artists, Paul Robeson sang this song, The Supremes. You have the the Women of Motown album behind you. People can't see it. You know, there's an amazing version of that song by The the Supremes. And and I think uh, your version is haunting. Haunting. 
Do you think that's because there's nothing around it? So it's just. I, I just thought it was so brave to sing it with nothing around it, too. You know what I mean? Like every rendition of that song has something around it. There's some instrumentation. Your version was the first acapella version I heard. And it just struck me as very brave, very cinematic, very effective and terrifying for you, apparently. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, Do you think I, that's what makes it work? Do you think being yes. a little being a little scared is is what brings it across for people? I think so. I think mm-hmm. be I think it's the same thing that we've already been talking about. It's that idea of transparency. So I think that you um you what you hear is a voice that's singing. You don't hear a singer. And I I think that's important to me. And I think particularly in the films, I think everywhere that I sing, you hear this voice that's sung but you don't hear a singer you don't hear a a singer performing a song I'm singing something that I'm having a conversation about and what the song does is it adds to the conversation in the film so it's it's this it's a different way of of voicing and you do I think you do hear I'm straining at points you hear the voice straining there's a little bit of hesitancy in some points and I think those things are important because the idea of the humanness in everything I make is really, really important. You made that work pre-pandemic. Yes. I just, I just wonder, you know, psychically you must have seen something coming. I mean, this piece includes the text. um, Can you remember the last time you did nothing? Yeah. And this appeared on, on a a fairly large billboard outside of, of the place where you were in, in residence. Mm. How did you connect with this idea at, at this time? I, I know it's a pre-pandemic piece. I know it's, it's um, surrounded by social and, and political ideas, but it also had this timing that was eerie. I know it did. You're right. I mean, it came in a moment and I, I you know, m- maybe in some ways it is a kind of metaphor for what was happening in the world anyway, but it came for me at a moment where I was completely exhausted and I was offered this residency and I was asked to make uh, a work um, a work using the um, the archive of the art center their 30th anniversary year and I arrived and I was completely exhausted and I looked around this archive and I just thought I don't even know where to begin I'm so tired and so I sat at the desk they'd set up for me and I just started to write and it was a moment where I felt like I need to do nothing but in my doing nothing of course there was an action happening so then I wanted to start thinking about this idea of what it means to be idle who gets to be idle what it really means kind of emotionally what it means politically what it means collectively I guess and so it really was born out of a very kind of personal moment and a a personal need I suppose but as all the works that I make they tend to move from me outside and become something that's much more of a collective concern whether that's socially or politically or or psychically I talk about like the collective psyche of society I suppose and so yes it eerily kind of coincided with (laughs) with what was happening and interestingly it opened for a week only one week and then we went into lockdown and then it never opened again in that space so we ended up showing it as a work online um, so it was very, it was a very, very strange moment. And, and interesting as well, you talk about the one built, there were two billboard, billboards for commuters on this kind of commuter road. Um, they would see one on their way into work or school and then the other on their way back. 
it felt really eerie that those billboards stayed up for the whole of lockdown. So we didn't take them down at all. I, I also think, you know, the ways both of those things spoke to ideas of privilege and, and race came also ahead of a great global reckoning about things yeah. like privilege and, and race. So I don't know. I mean, you were just kind of lockstep on, on multiple levels with, you know, the, the sort of beating heart of the times. In terms of talking about the politics of race and injustice, it runs through everything I make do. It's who I am and it's what I want to have conversations about and what I want to change. It will never leave me. It will always be there. And, and whatever I make a work about, somehow it comes into the conversation. So the conversations have to be everywhere. They have to be. Where are you taking your work next? What directions do you find yourself going in? What are you thinking about making? What are you interested in exploring? More writing, more film, more singing, new mediums? So there's a film that's, that shows that's just about to open. So it's a film I've only just finished. Is a film about a place just outside Manchester, Rochdale, it's called. It's the kind of birthplace, if you like, in the Western world of the cooperative movement. It's also a, a town that has been completely crippled by what's happened with industrialization or the loss of it. So it's a, it's a film about how we survive in communities and how, how the survival of communities happens. That's opening at the moment. I have another project that I'm working on with Serpentine Galleries in London, which is, is called a radio ballad. And I'm working with people who provide services of care. And I'm also working with people who receive services of care. And uh, we're making a kind of radio ballad that's looking at this idea of uh, a voice as a site of resistance and the body as a site of resilience. There'll be a sung performance, there'll be a film, and there'll be a book that we're making made up of different kinds of drawings and texts. So that's happening at the moment. And then I, I really, 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 I've been wanting to for ages make a film about love. And I have resisted and resisted because I, I, I need to understand how I'm going to approach it. But it will be a political, philosophical, really probably very deeply researched project about what love is and what it means. That was Helen Kamick. Helen's Art on the Underground Commission is up in seven tube stations across London through July 2022. Follow at Art on the Underground on Instagram for more information. Helen is on Instagram too, at Helen Kamick. Her new show at the Photographer's Gallery in London is called Concrete Feathers and Porcelain Tracks. It runs through February 13th, 2022. For reservations at The Nomad London, it's www.thenomadhotel.com London. Thank you for listening to Common Decency. Our show is produced by Rob Corso, Casey Kahn, and me, Howie Kahn, for Freetime Media. Our theme music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Elise Hammond, Andrew Zobler, Isadora McKeon, Kristen Millar, and Stefan Merriweather. Common Decency will return soon with a brand new guest. This is Common Decency, a Nomad London podcast. Checking out 